Some years ago, Rachel and I visited the German city of Berlin, the capital. It's a fascinating city. I would go back in a heartbeat. Um, You might remember from your uh, history lessons after World War II, West Berlin, the western part of the city, was a tiny slither of real estate. It belonged to Western Germany, and yet, as you can see, it was a tiny little island surrounded by communist East Germany. West Berlin, free, prosperous, democratic. And so what began happening as life deteriorated in East Germany, people started escaping into free West Berlin. And so the East German government did what I guess any other government would do and they built the Berlin Wall. But unlike a traditional border wall that's intended to keep people out, the Berlin Wall was intended to keep East Germans in, to hold them captive. There's a museum at a famous border crossing in West Berlin. It's called Checkpoint Charlie. If you're ever in the city, do yourself a favour. It is a fascinating museum. And in one section, they have a display of cars that were used by people to smuggle people into free West Berlin. And they challenge you to go up to these cars and to point out where these people were hidden. In some cases, it doesn't take very long, but there was one car, Rachel and I couldn't work it out, looked under the bonnet, we looked under the car, we looked in the boot, we moved the seats, we tapped on all of the panels, and finally the guide had mercy. And she showed us that what they'd done is they would remove the front seats, they would then very carefully hollow them out, then restore them to factory condition with someone inside, And you could move them, you could sit in them, but you had no idea that a person was underneath you the whole time. But you know what was missing in this museum? There was not one example, not one, of a person who was free now in West Berlin who then suddenly changed their mind and said, you know what, I'm going to go back to communist East Germany. Not one example. Now free, they began their new life and they had no intention of going back. And it's in a similar way here in Romans 6, though once ruled by sin, the Christian has been set free. By God's mercy, we've been set free from the rule of sin and brought under now the loving rule of God's Son, the Lord Jesus Christ. The Lord Jesus who offers us life and peace and reconciliation with God. We saw that in Romans 5. But now what? Having been set free, well, now what do we do? How do we live? Romans 6 begins the now what? As Paul explains that the old version of you has gone Once riddled with sin and hostile to God, the old you died with Jesus. And now having been raised with Jesus, a new era begins and you see the result in verse 4. We'll take a closer look at it later. Just as Jesus was raised to new life, you too may live a new life. And so after five and a half chapters... In the book of Romans, we finally come to the first instruction of the letter. Set free from the penalty of sin, 
Now what? Verse 12. Don't let sin reign in your mortal body. Put simply, united with Jesus, we live as the free people God has lovingly rescued us to be. So let's have a closer look at this. Turn with me to chapter 6, verse 1. What shall we say then? Shall we go on sinning so that grace may increase? If you let me rephrase that slightly, we could put it like this, and I I do this so we understand what's at stake. Shall we go on living in opposition to God, willfully disobeying him so that God's grace might increase? Now, whether any of the Christians in Rome asked this question, I'm not sure. What I do know is the Apostle Paul knows that people like us, we love a loophole. So how did we get here? If you've got your Bible open, turn back with me to chapter 5, verse 20. It might be only a page away. The very last section before chapter 6 begins. For context, while you're looking it up, Paul's pointing out how when God revealed his law, that exposed our sin problem. And so chapter 5, verse 20, where sin increased, grace increased all the more. In other words, God's grace, what is that? It's his mercy towards the undeserving. God's grace in Jesus more than accounts for my guilt. I'm guilty, but God's grace goes over and above my guilt, more than covers. Okay, so far, so good. I don't know everybody here tonight, but I'm going to make an assumption that you believe, if only vaguely, that it's a good idea to glorify God. I'm going to make that assumption. Having done so, the question then becomes, well, how do I glorify God? What does that look like? And that brings us to the situation described in verse 1. How do I glorify God? Well, shall I go on sinning so that grace may increase? Think of it. The more I sin, the more God forgives. The more God forgives, the more awesome he looks, which means since Jesus has dealt with the penalty of our sin and since we've agreed it's good to glorify God, well, it would be rude not to sin more. We're doing God a favour. He should be thanking us. And in addition to the bonus of getting to enjoy our sinful pleasures without the penalty needing to worry of condemnation, we're actually giving God a free kick because we're enabling him to advertise his mercy. This is win-win. What shall we say then? Shall we go on sinning so that grace may increase? Instinctively, you might know the question is nuts and just as an aside, I'd run with that instinct. But we need to take the question seriously, if only so that we can reject it carefully. I doubt anybody would argue with me if I said that Christians ought to resist sin. I think that's uncontroversial to say. In fact, our non-Christian friends would have that expectation of us. But why should a Christian resist sin? 
And while we're on the topic, how can a Christian resist sin? Well, Romans 6 is going to answer those questions, but not in the way we might expect. Some of you will know that I came to ministry later in life. And even though I'm old now, it still remains true, though not for much longer, I've spent more time on your side of the pulpit than this one. And in that time, I've sat through plenty of sermons where the takeaway message has felt like, drop and give me 20, you Christmas ham. Do better. Pull your socks up. Stop sinning. I doubt it's intentional. But as well as making the preacher sound more holy than he is, It also leaves me with the distinct impression that resisting sin is a combination of my willpower and the quality of my character. The difficulty is Romans 1 to 5 has made it absolutely clear that when it comes to sin, I have no willpower and the less said about the quality of my character, the better we'll all be. Of course, the same is true for you, but it would be rude to point that out, so I won't. The message of Romans 6 is not stop sinning, do better, pull your socks up. Romans 6 begins with an announcement, you died. The old you has died. That's where Romans 6 begins. The old you, under judgment, condemned, rightly, You died with Jesus. Have a look at verse 3. Paul appeals to what we know or don't you know. That all of us who were baptised into Christ Jesus were baptised into his death. Now, baptism here is simply referring to the symbolic outward expression of faith that confirms the inner reality of our heart. In other words, he's talking about when a person is converted or when they become a Christian. And Paul expands on the same point. Have a look at verses 6 and 7 with me. Again, he appeals to what we know. For we know that our old self was crucified with him, past tense, so that, and here's the result, look carefully, so that the body ruled by sin might be done away with, that we should no longer be slaves to sin, because that's what we were, verse 7, Because anyone who's died to sin has been set free from sin. Remember, those who escaped to free Berlin, nobody went back. Been set free. At which point somebody might say, you know, look, this whole dead to sin thing, it sounds great in theory. And maybe even in our better moments, we might be able to achieve it for an hour or two. And I want to say to you that I get it. Verse 7 says that in Jesus I've been set free from sin. But if I'm honest with you, I don't always feel set free from sin. Verse 11 tells me that I'm dead to sin, but I don't feel dead to sin. Actually, I feel sin's power all the time and frankly, I wish I was making better progress. Maybe you wish your senior minister was making better progress too. Be that as it may. I'm always encouraged when someone tells me that they are disappointed with the sin in their life. I'm encouraged 
because their disappointment is the telltale sign they've died to sin. How so? Well, before you became a Christian, you didn't care about sin. Before you became a Christian, it was nothing to you to grieve your heavenly Father by the way you lived. You entertained sin. You indulged sin. But now we're learning that a new era has begun. Dead to sin with Jesus, not yet perfectly, certainly not fully. But dead nonetheless, you've been set free from sin's power. So what shall we say then? Shall we go on sinning so that grace may increase? By no means. We're those, verse 2, who have died to sin. How can we live in it any longer? And so at the level of application here, I want to say two things. For those of you who feel weighed down by past mistakes, perhaps those of us with a tender conscience, I want you to receive the good news. Verse 6, our old self, verse 6, was crucified with him. Past tense, done. You are released from condemnation. Receive the good news. But on the other hand, to say you're dead to sin does not mean you'll never sin again. If that were true, we wouldn't need the command of verse 11. Don't let sin reign in your mortal body. Martin Luther is a name you might know. He was one of the famous church reformers and he summed up this tension between who we are and who we will be by saying, strange, though I am saved from sin, I'm not saved from sinning, not yet. He's not making excuses. He's pointing out that while forgiven until we reach heaven, the presence of sin remains. But even still, I think it's right that we should expect to be making progress against sin in the present time. So I need to ask... Are you making progress? The putting to death of sin is sin on the retreat in your life? Or do you dabble in your old life? That's from time to time. Like the problem gambler who goes to the casino, oh, not to gamble, just to soak up the atmosphere. The old you has been crucified. And so, my second point, in Jesus, you've been raised to new life. I wonder if you've ever um, attended and and seen uh, a full immersion baptism. Have you ever seen that? By the way, it doesn't matter whether you're dunked or sprinkled. The method is quite beside the point, okay? So don't get hooked up on that. That's that's really not important at all. But in a full immersion baptism, the person goes under the water, don't they? And they're being held under the water. And this going under the water symbolises your share in Jesus' death to sin. Now, we don't hold people under the water forever. I mean, that gets problematic for several reasons. You then rise, don't you? And that symbolises your resurrection life, your share in Jesus' victory over sin. Now, here's my point. In our Sydney Anglican circles, we rightly emphasise 
how Jesus' death and his resurrection releases you from the penalty of sin. We heard that in Romans 5. Therefore, since we have been justified through faith, we have peace with God. But there's another, I think perhaps less well-emphasised result of Jesus' death and resurrection revealed here in Romans 6. While in chapter 5 our new status was confirmed, justified, Romans 6 announces our new life. Look at verse 4. We were therefore buried with him through baptism into death. Why? In order that just as Christ was raised from the dead, here's the result, we too may live a new life. And this becomes immediately practical because it leads us to ask, well, if I've been raised to life in Jesus, what does the new life look like? What should I expect? Oh, that brings us to verse 12. This is the first command of the letter. I think broadly speaking, if I was to poll people out in the community and to show them a Bible, they they would say to me, look, it's got nothing but rules and regulations in it. I need to tell you, we are five and a half chapters into this letter. Paul has taken his time before he gives an instruction. So verse 12, therefore, do you remember the what's the therefore, therefore? So therefore, that is, since we've died to sin and since we've been raised to new life, therefore, well, don't let sin reign in your mortal body so that you obey its evil desires. That wouldn't make any sense. Verse 13, don't offer any part of yourself to sin as an instrument of wickedness. Why would you? You died to sin. But rather, offer yourselves to God as those who've been brought from death to life. So let's play out a thought experiment for a couple of minutes. Let's tease out what this new life might look like. It's going to change the way I think. Or to use the metaphor here, don't offer any part of your, your body. Well, what about my brain and the way I think? Do you remember when Jesus heals the paralytic, the guy they lower through the roof, and the first thing Jesus says to him is, son, your sins are forgiven? The very next thing that happens, all of Jesus' opponents, they're watching on, and Jesus makes public their inner thought life. That's a scary idea, isn't it? And Jesus says to them, why do you entertain evil thoughts in your hearts? I take it then. One way I can live the new life is to let Jesus rule my thoughts. And that might sound a bit kooky at first, but 2 Corinthians 5, take captive every thought to make it obedient to Christ. And so the new life will result in a new way of thinking. And we could go further. What about the way I speak and the way I use my tongue, or perhaps even the words... I'd like to speak. The cutting remark, the well-practised put-down that I've carefully crafted in the shower. I can't be the only one that's done it. In my new life, how can 
Jesus, so rule my tongue that instead of using it to tear people down, I use my tongue to encourage my brothers and sisters so that what I say better reflects the gracious character of the Lord Jesus Christ. Now, I could keep going. We could talk about hands, we could talk about feet. The practical applications here are endless. The point is, raised to new life, how can I offer my body in service to Jesus for his glory and the good of his people? And so verse 13, don't offer any part of yourself to sin as an instrument of wickedness, but rather offer yourselves to God as those who've been brought from death to life. And so then briefly and finally, I want to begin a discussion that I hope might continue over supper tonight. I want us to think a little bit about what life is going to look like now in what I've described as the messy in-between. That time between now when we learn to live the new life and the new creation that's to come when sin's power and sin's presence will be in the distant past. The message of Romans 6 is not do better and stop sinning, you wretched people. At best, a message like that might produce some short-term compliance, but then again, probably not even that. No, it's out of an abundance of love Romans 6 confirms you've been set free, raised with Jesus. You're no longer under the rule of sin. His resurrection victory makes it possible for us to resist sin. And while we wait for the new creation where sin will be a distant memory, I wonder if we might engage in some self-reflection. What I mean is, if we're free to resist sin now, and we are, then I think it's worth asking the question, where are the battle lines for sin in your life? Where do you need to be on high alert for those times when you might forget just how free you are? Is it your temper? Is it your greed? Because enough is never enough. Perhaps it's lust. Maybe you're prone to a deeply critical spirit. I don't know. I can't speak for you. I know where the battle lines are for me, though. Although possibly there are some here who've grown so complacent that sin barely weighs on their conscience at all. But the gospel is always good news. And so I want to say in any event for the sinner who trusts in Jesus, there's good news here because despite our failures, Jesus willingly accepts us as his disciples. So here's my encouragement to you. Let's go into this week as the free, rescued people that we are. Gladly offering ourselves to God's service, 
as those who've been brought from death to life. Free from the rule of sin, now under the loving rule of the Lord Jesus Christ.